Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to episode 68 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. I'm your host Paul and this show is entitled 10 Strange Ways of Measuring Stuff. But to begin our show this week, another countdown of sorts. From the mentalfloss.com website, an article by Miss Celania. 10 Legendary Monsters of Australasia and Antarctica. You'd think that there are enough scary animals in Australia that monstrous legends wouldn't be necessary. Apparently the deadly creatures that terrorise people on a regular basis aren't scary enough. The listings in this article also include New Zealand and I slid a monster from Antarctica in here as a convenience. Ningans and Bunyips and Yowies. Oh my. Number 1. Yaramar Yahoo. The Yaramar Yahoo is an Australian vampire from Aboriginal folklore. He's a short, red um, man resembling a demon. He has no teeth, which is unusual for a blood-sucking vampire. The Yaramar Yahoo waits in trees for a victim to stop beneath then jumps on him and sucks blood out through the octopus-like suckers the Yaramayahu has on his hands and feet. If this demon eats someone, he will take a nap and then vomit the meal back up. Luckily, the victim may still be alive. However, if the same person is victimised in this manner too many times, he himself will become a Yaramayahu. Number 2. The Hawkesbury River Monster The Hawkesbury River Monster is a sort of a cousin to Nessie, the Scottish Loch Ness Monster. The Hawkesbury River in New South Wales, Australia is a very deep river and the monster it accommodates is described as up to 24 metres long. Aboriginal paintings thousands of years old hint at the sightings of the monster which resembles a prehistoric plesiosaur. Although there are quite a few modern sightings, no one has been able to get a picture of the river monster. Number 3. The Bunyip A Bunyip is a spirit monster from Australian Aboriginal culture. It sleeps in rivers, swamps and billabongs during the day, but prowls the land at night looking for people or animals to eat. Its screams can be heard for long distances. Some Aborigines claim to have seen a bunyip, but descriptions vary. Does it resemble a snake, a wild human, or a furry mammal? Some theorise that while the bunyip may be legendary, the tales have been passed down for thousands of years, 
from back in the days when now extinct large predators prowled Australia. Number four, the Gippsland Phantom Cat. The Gippsland Phantom Cat is a large cat spotted in the Grampians region since the 1970s. The consensus among experts is that there have been sightings of large cats, probably feral descendants of house cats. US soldiers stationed in Victoria during World War II had a pair of pumas as mascots, and some think the two animals may have been set free and then reproduced in the wild, possibly mating with feral house cats over the years. There is no conclusive evidence for this. In 2005, hunter Kurt Engel shot a large cat with a 26-inch tail. Mitochondrial DNA tests on the large feral cat show it was a common domestic cat species, at least on its mother's side. Number 5. The Muljewanka. The Muljewanka are monsters, or maybe just one monster, that inhabits the Murray River and Lake Alexandrina into which it flows in South Australia. The tales of the monster are told to keep children away from the dangerous waters. One story tells of a European steamboat captain that shot a Muljewanka and was rewarded with a slow lingering death from creeping red blisters that covered his body. The Muljewanka is also blamed for boat wrecks. Beware of the seaweed growing in the lake. That's where the Muljewanka hide. Number six, a Yowie. The Australian version of a giant ape or Bigfoot is the Yowie. It is described as a bipedal gorilla who lives in the wilderness, which means most of Australia. The term Yowie is also used for a legendary animal which is not an ape, causing some confusion in conversations. The Aboriginal Yowie is thought to be a regional name for the Bunyip, Yowie hunter Paul Compton took the photo above near Glen Innes in 2007. And if you visit the show notes and have a look at the photo, it's the typical blurry outline. New Zealand has its own cryptid ape man called the Mohau. The large hairy creatures which haunt the Coromandel Ranges are aggressive and thought to be responsible for the deaths of a prospector and a nearby woman in 1882. The woman had been abducted from her home and was found with a broken neck. The prospector had been partially eaten. Mohau are the size of a normal man with an ape-like face, long shaggy hair and extremely long fingers and sharp fingernails or claws. Number 8. The Taniwa. The Maori monster Taniwa lives in the ocean, but also lurks in the rivers, lakes and watery caves of New Zealand. It resembles a shark, dragon or whale, or a shapeshifter that can appear like any of those animals. This monster eats people. In some legends, the Taniwa is a personal or tribal guardian, but still a danger to outsiders. Tanawas are named characters in many old Maori and Polynesian stories. Number 9. The Drop Bears. The Drop Bear is the creature that visitors to Australia are most often warned about. A marsupial native to Australia, 
It is a vicious carnivore that attacks its prey by hiding high in a tree and dropping onto unsuspecting tourists. Photos of a drop bear show a startling resemblance to a koala, which is how the sneaky beasts fool you into standing under their trees. Defences against the drop bear include sticking a fork into your hair or smearing Vegemite behind your ears. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to episode 68 of the Mysteries Abound podcast, and then on the link to this article, just scroll down a little bit to the story about the drop bear, and there is a link to a less than convincing video showing the drop bear in action. And finally, number 10, the Ningen. Ningen is a Japanese word meaning human. But there's something definitely inhuman about the stories of the Ningen that lives in the waters off Antarctica. These sea monsters are white and have been reported up to 30 metres long. Ningen have humanoid eyes and mouths, but descriptions of their bodies vary. They may have fins or arms and legs, or sometimes with fingered hands and fins instead of legs, like a mermaid. Ningen sightings may turn out to be icebergs, whales, dolphins, rays, or maybe even too much to drink. And now onto an article about a little creature that would be quite at home in feasting on the content of the previous story. From the newswatch.nationalgeographic.com website. Did you know that dung beetles navigate via the Milky Way? They're the first known in the animal kingdom. Talk about star power. A new study shows that dung beetles navigate via the Milky Way the first known species to do so in the animal kingdom. The tiny insects can orient themselves to the bright stripe of light generated by our galaxy and move in a line relative to it, according to recent experiments in South Africa. This is a complicated navigational feat. It's quite impressive for an animal that size, says study co-author Eric Warrant, a biologist at the University of Lund in Sweden. Moving in a straight line is crucial to dung beetles, which live in a rough-and-tumble world where competition for excrement is fierce. Once the beetles sniff out a steaming pile, males painstakingly craft the dung into balls and roll them as far away from the chaotic mound as possible, often toting a female that they have also picked up. The pair bury the dung, which later becomes food for their babies. But it's not always that easy. Lurking about the dung pile are lots of dung beetles just waiting to snatch a freshly made ball. That's why the ball-bearing beetles have to make a fast beeline away from the pile. If they roll back into the dung pile, it's curtains, Warren said. If thieves near the pile steal their ball, the beetle has to start all over again, 
which is a big investment of energy. Scientists already knew that dung beetles can move in straight lines, away from dung piles, by detecting a symmetrical pattern of polarised light that appears around the sun. We can't see this pattern, but insects can, thanks to special photoreceptors in their eyes. But less well known was how beetles use visual cues at night, such as the moon and its much weaker polarised light pattern. So Warrant and colleagues went to a game farm in South Africa to observe the nocturnal African dung beetle. Attracting the beetles proved straightforward. The scientists collected buckets of dung, put them out and waited for the beetles to fly in. But their initial observations were puzzling. The beetles could still roll a ball in a straight line, even on moonless nights, which caused us a great deal of grief. We didn't know how to explain this at all, Warren said. Then it occurred to us that maybe they were using the stars. And it turned out they were. To test the star theory, the team set up a small enclosed table on the game reserve, placed beetles on them and observed how the insects reacted to different sky conditions. The team confirmed that even on clear moonless nights, the beetles could still navigate their balls in a straight line. To show that the beetles were focusing on the Milky Way, the team moved the table into the Johannesburg Planetarium and found that the beetles could orient equally well under a full starlit sky as when only the Milky Way was present. Lastly, to confirm the Milky Way results, the team put little cardboard hats on the study beetles, blocking their view of the sky. Those beetles just rolled around and around aimlessly, according to the study published recently in the journal Current Biology. Dung beetle researcher Sean D. Whipple of the Entomology Department at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln said by email that the awesome results provide strong evidence for orientation by starlight in dung beetles. He added that this discovery reveals another potential negative impact of light pollution, a global phenomenon that blocks out the stars. If artificial light from city houses and roadways etc. drowns out the visibility of the night sky, it could have the potential to impact effective orientation and navigation of dung beetles in the same way as an overcast sky, Whipple said. Study co-author Warrant added that other dung beetles likely navigate via the Milky Way, although the galaxy is most prominent in the night sky in the southern hemisphere. What's more, it's probably a widespread skill that insects have. Migrating moths might also be able to do it. As for the beetles themselves, they were very easy to work with, he added. You can do anything you want to them, and they just keep on rolling. And now to one of the great mysteries of the universe. Standing in the shower, or sitting in the tub, many of us have looked at our wrinkled fingertips and had occasion to wonder, why do they get so pruney when wet? An article by Joseph Stromberg from the blogs.smithsonianmag.com. 
www.ghostbusinessclub.com website. Over the years, people have pointed to a number of explanations. Most commonly, the idea that the wrinkles are simply a reflection of the skin absorbing water. Now, according to a study published yesterday in the journal Biology Letters by researchers from Newcastle University in the UK, we have a definitive and more interesting explanation. Pruny fingers are better at gripping wet objects. The idea was first suggested in a 2011 paper which showed that the wrinkles that form on our fingers exhibit consistent patterns that allow water to sluice away, indicating that their role is to improve traction, like tread on a tyre. For this paper, an unrelated group of researchers put the theory to test, letting 20 volunteers soak their fingers in warm water for 30 minutes to get them good and pruny then testing exactly how long it took them to move wet glass marbles and fishing weights from one container to another. On average, pruny-fingered participants moved wet marbles 12% more quickly than when they were tested on unwrinkled fingers. When the same test was performed with dry marbles, the times were roughly the same. Thus it seems the hypothesis was proved Pruny fingers do help us grip better. Other research has shown that the wrinkles form as a result of blood vessels beneath the skin constricting, as directed by the autonomic nervous system. Because this is an active process, rather than merely a byproduct of the skin absorbing water, as previously assumed, scientists began looking for the underlying reason why this might be the case. The gripping hypothesis makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint too. Going back in time, this wrinkling of our fingers in wet conditions could have helped with gathering food from wet vegetation or streams, study co-author and behavioural researcher Tom Smulders said in a press statement. And as we see the effect in our toes too, this may have been an advantage, as it may have meant our ancestors were able to get a better footing in the rain. If pruny fingers are better at gripping wet objects and don't slow us down with dry ones though, the theory prompts a question. Why aren't our fingers permanently wrinkled? The study's authors acknowledge this query and admit that they don't have a ready answer, but speculate that permanent pruniness could limit our fingers' sensitivity or even make them more likely to be cut by sharp objects. And whilst we're out there solving some of the major mysteries of the human body, let's stay with the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website and find out why do we blink so frequently? We all blink. A lot. The average person blinks some 15 to 20 times per minute. So frequently that our eyes are closed for roughly 10% of our waking hours overall. And some of this blinking has a clear purpose, mostly to lubricate the eyeballs and occasionally protect them from dust or other debris. Scientists say that we blink far more often than necessary for these functions alone. Thus, blinking is a physiological riddle. Why do we do it so darn often? 
In a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a group of scientists from Japan offers up a surprising new answer. That briefly closing our eyes might actually help us to gather our thoughts and focus attention on the world around us. The researchers came to the hypothesis after noting an interesting fact revealed by previous research on blinking, that the exact moments when we blink aren't actually random. Although seemingly spontaneous, studies have revealed that people tend to blink at predictable moments. For someone reading, blinking often occurs after each sentence is finished, while for a person listening to a speech, it frequently comes when the speaker pauses between statements. A group of people all watching the same video tend to blink around the same time too, when action briefly lags. As a result, the researchers guessed that we might subconsciously use blinks as a sort of mental resting point, to briefly shut off visual stimuli and allow us to focus our attention. To test the idea, they put 10 different volunteers in an fMRI machine and had them watch the TV show, Mr Bean. They had used the same show in their previous work on blinking, showing that it came at implicit breakpoints in the video. Then they monitored which areas of the brain showed increased or decreased activity when the study participants blinked. Their analysis showed that when the bean watchers blinked, mental activity briefly spiked in areas related to the default network, areas of the brain that operate when the mind is in a state of wakeful rest, rather than focusing on the outside world. Momentary activation of this alternate network, they theorize, could serve as a mental break, allowing for increased attention capacity when the eyes are opened again. To test whether this mental break was simply a result of the participants' visual inputs being blocked, rather than a subconscious effort to clear their minds, the researchers also manually inserted blackouts into the video at random intervals that lasted roughly as long as the blink. In the fMRI data though, the brain areas related to the default network weren't similarly activated. Blinking is something more than temporarily not seeing anything. It's far from conclusive, but the research demonstrates that we do enter some sort of altered mental state when we blink. We're not just doing it to lubricate our eyes. A blink could provide a momentary island of introspective calm in the ocean of visual stimuli that defines our lives. It is I, the Count. They call me the Count because I love to count things. In fact, I am looking for some things to count right now. Oh, dear. I don't see anything to count. Oh, I must look some more. How could this be? There is nothing to count. Oh, and I wanted to count so much. This is very frustrating. Well, just in time to help out the count, 
from the www.mentalfloss.com website. An article by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie. Nine historical methods of detecting pregnancy. Just in case you wondered. Home pregnancy tests are kind of magical. They're like those litmus test things from junior high science, except they can tell you whether you've got a baby in there. These tests work by detecting trace levels of the pregnancy hormone human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG, in the urine. HCG is present after egg implementation, which occurs 6 to 12 days after fertilization and is secreted by the cells that are beginning to form the placenta. Home pregnancy tests became widely available in 1978, although they took two hours to develop and gave false negatives 80% of the time. Nowadays, they can supposedly tell as early as five days before your missed period. Before the invention of this miraculous device, the most reliable test was just wait and see. But while it might be a nice surprise to find out you're pregnant the old-fashioned way, barfing, missing periods, having a baby, women still wanted to know as early as possible whether or not they were harboring a tiny human. So how did they do it? Weirdly enough, it always comes back to pee. And just for the count, number one, the wheat and barley test. One of the earliest, if not the earliest, home pregnancy tests came from ancient Egypt. In 1350 BCE, women were advised to urinate on wheat and barley seeds over the course of several days. If the wheat sprouted, she was having a girl. And if the barley sprouted, a boy. If neither sprouted, she wasn't pregnant. The most interesting thing about this test was that it actually worked. In 1963, a laboratory experiment with the wheat and barley test found that 70% of the time, the urine of pregnant women would cause the seeds to spout, while the urine of non-pregnant women and men didn't. The ancient Egyptians knew everything. Number two, the onion test. While the ancient Egyptians were onto something with the wheat and barley test, they and the ancient Greeks seemed to have had a fuzzy understanding of anatomy. Both Egyptian medical papyri and Hippocrates, lauded as the father of medicine, suggested that a woman who suspected she might be pregnant insert an onion or other strong-smelling bulbous vegetable into her vagina overnight. If her breath smelled of onions the next morning, she wasn't pregnant. This was based on the idea that her womb was open and wafting the onion scent up to her mouth like a wind tunnel. If she were pregnant, then the womb would be closed, so no wind tunnel. Number three, the beer and date mash test. Another ancient Egyptian papyrus suggested spreading mashed up dates and beer around on the floor and recording how many times the unfortunate woman who sat on this carpet of nasty vomited. If it were a lot, then presumably she was super pregnant. The thinking behind this one, though impractical and weird, isn't too ridiculous. After all, aversion to strong odours and propensity to vomit are often signs of early pregnancy. 
Or could it be a sign that covering a floor with mashed up beer and dates is gross? Number four, the latch test. From the Distaff Gospels, a collection of women's medical law written in the late 15th century. My friends, if you want to know if a woman is pregnant, you must ask her to pee in a basin and then put a latch or a key in it. But it is better to use a latch. Leave this latch in the basin with the urine for three or four hours. Then throw the urine away and remove the latch. If you see the impression of the latch on the basin, be sure that the woman is pregnant. If not, she is not pregnant. Say, what now? Number five, piss profits. As bizarre as the latch test sounds, it is still recognized that something in pregnant lady pee was different than non-pregnant lady or man pee, a fact that 16th century European piss profits also recognized. These so-called experts claimed that they could determine whether or not a woman was with child by the color and characteristics of her urine. Some also mixed urine with wine and observed the results, a test that might have seen some success, given that alcohol can react to proteins present in pregnant lady pee. Of course, these piss prophets didn't limit their wee-wee divination to pregnant ladies. They could also, by examining urine, intuit whether the urine's owner was suffering from any illness or disease. Number six, look into my eyes. One 16th century physician, Jacques Guillemot, claimed that you could tell by a woman's eyes whether she was pregnant. Guillemot, author of an influential treatise on ophthalmology, claimed that as early as the second month, a pregnant woman gets deep-set eyes with small pupils, drooping lids and swollen little veins in the corner of the eye. That is likely not true, but he was right about one thing. Eyes can change during pregnancy, affecting your vision. This is why it's not a good idea to get new contacts or prescription glasses during pregnancy. Number seven, I saw the sign. Early on in pregnancy, roughly six to eight weeks in, the cervix, labia and vagina can take on a dark bluish or purple-red hue, owing to the increased blood flow to the area. This remarkable indication of pregnancy, before other traditional signs like craving pickles or barfing a lot, was first noticed in 1836 by a French physician. It later became known as Chadwick's sign after James Reed Chadwick, an obstetrics doctor who brought the discovery up at a meeting of the American Gynecological Society in 1886. But given that you had to look at the vagina to see the sign, and how prudish 19th century doctors tended to be, it's unlikely that Chadwick's sign was used very often as an indicator of pregnancy. Number eight, the rabbit test. Aside from observational tests such as Chadwick's sign, however, pregnancy tests were still an unpleasant crapshoot up until the 20th century. Investigation into hormones, the big thing in science at the turn of the century, then just made pregnancy testing unpleasant for a bunch of rabbits, mice and rats. 
In the 1920s, two German scientists, Selma Aschheim and Bernhard Zondek, determined that there was a specific hormone present in the urine of pregnant women that seemed to be linked to ovary growth. We now know it as HCG. They figured this out by injecting the urine of pregnant women into sexually immature rabbits, rats and mice, which would induce ovarian development. Most of the time, the pregnant lady pee would produce bulging masses on the animal's ovaries, a sure indication of the presence of HCG. So the rabbit test was born. According to a contemporary medical journal, it worked like this. A sample of urine was injected into a group of young female mice over a period of five days. On the fifth day, the mice were killed and autopsied to examine the state of their ovaries. If their reproductive bits looked excited, the test was positive. If you wanted your results in less than five days, they could simply use more mice. This method ran through a lot of rabbits, mice and rats, though the phrase, the rabbit died, popularly meant that the woman was pregnant. In actuality, all of the rabbits and the mice and rats died. Though doctors could look at the ovaries of the animal without killing it, that tended to be too much trouble. And finally, number nine. You guessed it. The frog test. Though it worked on the same principle as the rabbit test, this one was actually a bit better. At least the animal remained alive at the end of it. In the late 1940s, scientists determined that when pregnant lady pee is injected into a live toad or frog, the unfortunate amphibian will produce eggs within 24 hours. The toad or frog lived to see another day, and usually another test. The test was called the Bufo test, after the particular species of toad usually used. As horrible as the animal killing tests sound, they were important steps on the road to the first blood test and then the home pregnancy test, which fundamentally changed the way women think about pregnancy and their own bodies. So let's say a quiet thank you to the rabbits, rats, mice, frogs and onions who were sacrificed for the cause. From the www.unmuseum.org website, an article by Lee Christick. Whatever happened to the monorail? Ever since my kids were small, I've read to them pretty much every night. It's a practice I recommend to any parent. Not only does it help to make a lifelong reader, it creates a special time for a child and parent to bond. I especially enjoy introducing some of my favourite books, I enjoyed as a young person to my own kids. 
One we read recently was Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, Stand By for Mars. This book from the 1950s actually predated my own childhood, but a copy was left lying around the house by my older brothers, so I wound up reading it. I have to say, the plot, a group of adolescent boys training to be spacemen in a future era when Venus and Mars have been colonised, holds up pretty well. One of the interesting aspects of reading older science fiction like this is to compare the writer's vision of the future against our reality. What technology has appeared that he couldn't predict? For example, computers play no major role in the equipment pictured in the book. Today you might expect some computerised controls in a spaceship capable of interplanetary travel. Fifty years ago, however, the only computers around were huge mainframes that took up entire floors of buildings. The thought that one of these behemoths might fit into the cockpit of a rocket was probably ludicrous to the writer at the time. Of course, today we know that this same amount of processing power, or even more, can reside in the phone you carry in your pocket. The book also carries examples of technology that was expected to be widespread, but so far have not shown up. Throughout the novel, when the characters aren't rocketing through space, they ride from place to place on an extensive monorail system. That got me thinking. A lot of science fiction books of the era seemed to expect that monorails would play an important part in passenger transportation as the new millennium neared. Many exhibits that look forward to the future, such as the 1964-65 World Fair in New York and Disney's Tomorrowland, also featured monorails. Yet here we are, 13 years into the 21st century, and I'm still not riding one of these sleek, elevated, bullet-nosed trains to work. Whatever happened to the monorail? Now, I'm not talking about the type of novelty monorails you might see at a zoo or amusement park. Those are great, I love to ride them, and they can be very effective at giving people a bird's-eye view of the ground without building a massive support track. What I'm thinking about here, though, are monorails as part of a transit system, meant to carry people from place to place in the same way a trolley, bus or commuter train does. Probably the best place to find out about the current status of monorails is the Monorail Society. The Monorail Society is a group of people who love monorails, think that they would help to solve a plethora of transportation problems and do what they can to promote them. The site includes information about pretty much every transit monorail system in the world, as well as technical information about the different types of monorails there are and how they work. One of the first things the site helped me figure out was just what a monorail exactly is. You might think, to steal a phrase from Justice Steward, you know one when you see one. But that's not necessarily true. The society defines a monorail as a single rail serving as a track for passenger or freight vehicles. In most cases, rail is elevated, but monorails can also run at grade, below grade or in subway tunnels. Vehicles are either suspended from or straddle a narrow guideway. Monorail vehicles are wider than the guideway that supports them. So being sleek and bullet-like isn't really the criteria. 
For example, the BART system from the San Francisco Bay Area is sleek, elevated in parts, and futuristic looking. But because it runs on two tracks, it's really just a slicker version of the trolley lines that appeared at the end of the 19th century. On the other hand, the Seattle Centre monorail, which was constructed in 1962 in conjunction with the World's Fair, does qualify as a monorail system. It has a single rail and an elevated mile-long track that connects downtown Seattle with Seattle's centre. The Seattle line is probably the best-known monorail connected with the city and has been a popular part of the skyline for years. Still, it remains only one of a handful of monorails in North America used for transit. It's my perception that when an idea like this doesn't catch on quickly, there's usually a reason for it. Either it's too expensive, technically unworkable, or undesirable for some other reason. Is that the case here? The people at the Monorail Society say that's not the problem, and list all the wonderful reason why these trains should be adopted. First, they are relatively cheap to build. In the best situations, you can just dig a series of holes, drop in a few pylons, bring in some pre-built rails, lift them into position with a crane, then wire the whole thing up, and you are running. Compare that with the expense and complexity of preparing a rail line, where every foot of the right-of-way needs to be cut or filled to be made level. Ties need to be heavily supported to take the weight of the trains. The ground needs proper drainage, street crossings need signals and gates, etc. Secondly, monorails are environmentally friendly and safe. The elevated track allows much of the ground below to be undisturbed. Also, the rails create much less of a shadow on the land than an elevated road or train line. The above-grade track also removes any chance of the train colliding with surface traffic or running over pedestrians. The design of most monorails, either straddling or hanging from the guideway, virtually eliminates the possibility of derailment too. So, with all this going for it, why are there no monorails in most cities? I decided to contact the president of the Monorail Society, Kim Pedersen. Mr. Pedersen is a huge monorail fan. Not only has he studied monorails for the last 18 years, but he has built a miniature monorail, large enough for himself to ride in around his backyard garden. Now, when I run into this kind of dedication, a person willing to spend the time and expense, not to mention brave the raised eyebrows of friends and neighbours to pursue his interests in such a tangible way, I know I've found an expert on the subject. So I asked him about his thoughts on the regrettable lack of monorails. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to pinpoint it down to one reason. I think it's a combination of factors, and it depends on which proposal we're talking about as far as importance of each reason. Pedersen has found that the following apprehensions, however, usually come up about a monorail proposal. There aren't any transit monorails. We shouldn't build something that hasn't been proven. This is an oft-cited concern, according to Pedersen. It's a ludicrous reason, but it sticks for some reason. This is despite the fact that there are dozens of successful transit monorails around the world. Monorails are perceived as new, experimental and untried. Not enough people are aware of the many transit monorails in operation today, along with their proven track record. 
a lot more people can make a lot of money if light rail or subway is built. According to Pedersen, this is something some transportation experts have whispered to us over the years. The conventional rail industry has established a stronghold and monorail is often discouraged by consultants. Familiar large firms recite the same untruths about monorail in city after city when rail is being studied for implementation and they eliminate monorail in the early stages of planning. You might expect that in this situation those companies that built monorails might conduct a publicity campaign to help their product. But Pedersen says most manufacturers of monorails build all kinds of rail systems besides their monorail product. If your city wants a more expensive technology than monorail or if their consultant steers them in another direction, manufacturers are all too happy to oblige by selling them something more expensive. Elevated Rail Stigma People think of noisy trains and overbearing structures like Chicago's EL, says Pedersen. They don't always realise monorail has elegant structures with very narrow guideways and extremely quiet trains. Anyone who has been to both Disney World and New York City can testify to the huge difference between steel and rubber wheels. Just imagine the monorail quietly gliding through the atrium of the Contemporary Hotel compared to the screech of a New York City subway train entering its station. There's another reason that Pedersen didn't list, but is an acknowledged hindrance to installing a real monorail transit system. I like to call it the Disneyland factor. Though the idea of a monorail dates back to the early 19th century, the monorail installed in Disneyland when it opened in 1959 with its sleek futuristic looks caught the public's attention like no other monorail has since then. With another, larger line installed at Disney World in Florida and copies built at other amusement parks throughout the world, the monorail has now been forever coupled with the idea of a theme park. And therein lies the rub. In people's minds, monorails are theme park rides, not solutions to real-world transit problems. You can imagine the position of a manager in charge of building a new transit system. He's presented with proposals to build a system based on conventional rail technology versus monorail technology. The monorail is cheaper, nicer, way more cool. But suppose his project runs into problems, as almost any large project does. If he is building a conventional rail system, he can just point to countless other projects in other cities that had snags too. That's to be expected. But if his monorailed project runs into problems, he risks his opponents sneering, well, what did you expect? He built a theme park ride. With their jobs and reputations on the line, it isn't hard to see why most managers would recommend building something perceived to be proven, even at the risk of spending more money for a lesser system. Pedersen doesn't see the situation changing, at least in the United States in the near future. Internationally, we're seeing a lot more monorails being planned and built though, and there's always hope that the USA gets out of its third world transit status. Then again, high-speed rail started in Japan in 1964. We're still waiting for that too. I am encouraged by the enthusiasm people have for monorail, however, he continues, and sooner or later something may take off. 
All we need is one non-resort system to be successful here, similar to Kuala Lumpur monorail. Then officials of other cities will get it. It may be that the best hope for the monorail in North America now resides in perhaps the most unexpected of places, Las Vegas. If there is any place in the world that is a cross between a theme park and a city, Las Vegas qualifies. Perhaps here the monorail can finally make the jump. A short system was originally installed in 1995 and was extended in 2004 to a length of four miles with seven stations. The line which covers much of the famed Las Vegas Strip uses the same technology as the trains at Disney World and carries up to 30,000 passengers a day, a respectable load for any small transit system. The Las Vegas system is also fully automated and needs no drivers for the trains, which lowers the cost, making it even more attractive to other locations that might want to try the technology. Not that the Las Vegas system didn't go through some rough spots. During 2004, it was shut down for four months because parts kept falling off the trains onto the street below. Hardly a situation that inspired confidence. This problem was eventually solved, however, and ridership has been increasing ever since, with over 704,000 passengers enjoying the line in April of 2006. This is short of projected goals, but the monorail still has the support of many of the hotels, casinos and businesses, some of whom sponsor parts of the system. My personal favourite is the Borg train that has been painted to draw attention to the Hilton's Star Trek experience. Who wouldn't want a ride in a monorail car covered with colourful aliens inside and out? City-to-city -city monorail lines may also be on the horizon as the sky gets overcrowded with air traffic and security checks makes visit to the airport a nightmare. Maglev technology, which allows the trains to float above the track on a magnetic field, is very attractive when coupled with monorail-type tracks. With no friction from wheels, maglev trains can obtain speeds of 300 miles per hour or more, nearly that of an airliner. Because keeping a train travelling at that speed on its track is a major consideration, using a monorail, which virtually eliminates derailments, makes a lot of sense. One maglev monorail has been successfully operating in passenger service in Shanghai, China since 2004, and it seems likely that others will follow. So hopefully things are looking up for the monorail, and in the not-too-distant future, perhaps more of us will have a chance to board these trains. They seem to have lots of positives and few drawbacks. Also, they might be key to saving our cities and preserving our environment. As Kim Pedersen notes, they have sex appeal that no other form of rail really has. Perhaps enough to get Joe Citizen out of his SUV and take the monorail downtown instead.
Humans love order. We love organising people into groups, race, gender, etc. We love ranking things, top ten lists, and we love comparing things. Over time, we develop units of measure to help us in our goal to quantify the world around us. Mostly these units are mundane, but occasionally something new arises, which can seem outright strange. From the listverse.com, an article by Adam Wares. Ten strange ways of measuring stuff. Number 10. The smoot. It might sound like a made-up word, but the smoot unit of measurement is a huge deal, especially in Massachusetts where it first originated. In 1958, a 1.7-metre tall fraternity pledge called Oliver Smoot agreed to be used to measure the 620-metre-long Harvard Bridge which connects Boston and Cambridge. After repeatedly lying down on the bridge and having his position marked in chalk, it turned out that the bridge was 364.4 smoots long. However, this harmless prank is now infamous. In the 1980s, when the bridge was renovated, the local police had to ask for the smoot marks to be repainted as they used them to record accidents. And Google now allows you to calculate or measure anything in smoots. Number 9. The Big Mac Index The Big Mac Index is, not as we might be tempted to think, a name for a photo album full of burger pictures. Instead, it's the method that The Economist has used since 1986 to compare the economies of countries. It is based on the price of a McDonald's Big Mac. For example, in January 2012, you could buy 23 Big Macs in the Ukraine and Hong Kong for $50 US, but only 7 in Norway and Switzerland for the same price. In fact, some governments regard this as such an important measure of economy that Argentina has been accused of price-fixing the cost of their Big Macs in order to improve the country's ranking. Number 8. Waffle House Method Waffle House prides itself on a few things. The most obvious being its waffles. The second, that its customers can come at any time even during a natural disaster, and chow down on some hot food. It's for this reason that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uses Waffle House restaurants as a guide to how badly an area has been hit by a hurricane. If the door is open, it's all good. If it's closed, however, in the words of one FEMA administrator, that's where you go to work. Number 7. Moment Whenever somebody asks you to do something and you reply, just a moment, don't think you're being sneaky by not giving them a precise time. You're not. A moment is a measurement of time used during the medieval period. It is equal to roughly one and a half minutes. And just to make things more confusing, a moment could be broken down further into 12 ounces of 7.5 seconds each. Number 6. The Schmidt Sting Pain Index. The Schmidt Sting Pain Index is a pain scale designed by Justin Schmidt, an entomologist at the Carl Hayden Bee Research Centre, 
to measure the painfulness of stings. According to the index, a zero rating is a sting that causes no pain, whilst a two is a sharp pain, as in bee and wasp stings. If you're having trouble thinking of what a four might feel like, according to the man himself, you might as well just lie down and scream. Oh, and you shouldn't definitely trust this scale, because Schmidt had to be stung by hundreds of different insects to create it. The tarantula hawk wasp has one of the highest Schmidt pain indexes of all creatures. And if you want to see what it looks like, visit the show notes. There's a picture of it. Number five, the Holmes and Rahi stress scale. In 1967, Thomas Holmes and Richard Rahi devised a scale to measure the amount of stress in someone's life. It ranks 43 life events, ranging from Christmas and trouble with the in-laws to divorce and the death of a spouse. The more stressful the event, the higher the score. And the higher the score, the more likely you are to suffer ill health as a result. Trouble with your boss ranks as a 23, and the death of a spouse ranks as a 100. Interestingly, a vacation, ranked at 13, scores higher than Christmas, at 12, or a minor violation of the law, at 11. A score above 300 means a high risk of illness, but with spousal death at 100, it would be hard to imagine what event could result in a 300 score. Number four, Jolie. First off, this is not a scale for measuring enormous lip sizes. It is far more serious than that. As a result of the media coverage that Angelina Jolie has brought to various aid organisations, there's no doubt that many people around the world are better off than they were before. And, as a neat side effect, we now have a method of measuring this benefit, the Jolie. First coined by Paul Salapek, a Jolie is a unit of measuring how much international aid a country receives when a celebrity popularises the situation there. As Salapek described in 2005, the Democratic Republic of Congo received $11 per capita's worth of aid, whilst Darfur, with an equally similar situation and the added attention brought to it by Jolie, received $300 per capita in aid. Hence, a Jolie can be thought of as a 27 times increase in aid receipt. Number three, the muter scale. Not surprisingly, wrestlers often get badly beaten during wrestling matches, a habit which causes them to bleed. In some cases, a lot. The muter scale is a method used by fans to determine precisely how much blood a wrestler loses during the course of a match. A score of 0.1 muter is a large scratch, whereas 1 muter refers to the amount of blood that the great muter, a wrestler from Japan, lost during a New Japan Pro Wrestling match in 1992. How much blood was that? So much blood, it is considered to be the bloodiest wrestling match in history. Number two, the Scoville scale. The Scoville scale is used to measure the amount of capsaicin in chilies, because it's sometimes important to know the exact temperature of the inferno that's raging in your mouth. Unlike the Schmidt scale, the creator of the Scoville scale didn't eat every pepper he tested. 
Instead, he extracted the oil of the plant, the part that gives it heat, and measured how many times it needed to be diluted with a mixture of sugar and water before no heat could be detected. The more dilutions needed, the higher the Scoville rating. For example, the oil of the Trinidad Moruga Scorpion needs diluting between 1.5 million and 2 million times before it can be eaten. Therefore, that's its Scoville score. Incidentally, law enforcement grade pepper spray rates at the same level as the Trinidad Moruga Scorpion. And finally, because I think I'm counted out for this episode, number one, micromort. Micromorts measure the increased chances of death resulting from performing a mundane task. One micromort is the equivalent of a one in a million chance of death. Some activities that will increase your risk of death by one micromort are living for five years at the boundary of a nuclear power plant. Spending one hour in a coal mine, drinking Miami water for one year, or living in New York for two days. The value of one micromort is $50, the price a person is willing to pay to mitigate the effects of their activity. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes can be found at the Origins website, www.origins.info. If you'd like to provide feedback for the podcast via email or iTunes or elsewhere, remember it's always greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to find out more about the podcast, what's happening, what I'm up to, how the episodes are coming, when they're due, all that sort of stuff, go to the Facebook link, which is www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y, all one word, or just click on the Facebook link on the show notes. Now, we can't conclude the podcast without doing at least one paranormal tale, can we? So from the www.creepypasta.com website, this one's called Ikbar Beaglestein, and it's by Stephen D. Harris. When I was a small child, I was terrified of the dark. I still am. 
but back when I was around six years old, I couldn't go a full night without crying out for one of my parents to search beneath my bed or in my closet for whatever monster I thought was waiting to eat me. Even with a nightlight I would still see dark shapes moving around the corners of the room or strange faces looking in on me from my bedroom window. My parents would do their best to console me, telling me that it was just a bad dream or a trick of the light, but in my young mind I was positive that the second I fell asleep, the bad things would get me. Most of the time I would just hide under the blankets until I became tired enough to stop worrying. But every now and then I would become so panicked that I would run screaming into my parents' room, waking up my brother and sister in the process. After an ordeal like that, there would be no way anyone would be getting a full night's rest. Eventually, after one particularly traumatising night, my parents had had enough. Unfortunately for them, they understood the futility in arguing with a six-year-old and knew that they would be unable to convince me to rid myself of childish fears through reason and logic. They had to be clever. It was my mother's idea to stitch together my little bedtime friend. She collected a large assortment of random pieces of fabric and her sewing machine and created what I would later refer to as Mr. Ickbar Beaglestein or Ick for short. Ick was a sock monster, as my mother called him. He was made to keep me safe while I slept at night by scaring away all the other monsters. He was pretty damn creepy, I had to admit. Honestly, looking back on it all now, I'm still impressed that my mum could think of something so strange and disturbing looking. Ickbar had the stitched together look of a Frankenstein gremlin, with big white button eyes and floppy cat ears. His little arms and legs were made from a pair of my sister's black and white striped socks, and the half of his face that was green was made from one of my brother's tall football socks. His head could have been described as bulbous, and for his mouth my mum attached a piece of white fabric and sewed in a zigzag pattern to shape a wide grin of sharp teeth. I loved him at once. From then on, Ick never left my side. So long as it was after dusk, of course. Ick didn't like the sun, and would get upset if I tried to bring him to school with me. But that was okay. I only needed him at night to keep away the boogeyman, which was what he was good at. So every night at bedtime, Ick would tell me where the monsters were hiding, and I would place him near the section of my room closest to the spookiness. If there was something in the closet, Ick would block the door. If there was a dark creature scratching at my window, Ick would be pressed up against the glass. If there was a big hairy beast under my bed, then under my bed he went. Sometimes the monsters weren't even in my room. Sometimes they would hide in my dreams. And Ickbar would have to come with me into my nightmares. It was fun bringing Ick into my dream world, as he and I would spend hours fighting off ghouls and demons. The best part was, in my dreams, Ick could talk to me for real. How much do you love me? he would ask. More than anything, I would always tell him. One night in a dream after I had lost my first tooth, Ick asked me for a favour. Can I have your tooth? I asked him why. To help me kill the bad things, he said. The next morning at breakfast, my mum asked me where my tooth went. From what she had told me, 
the tooth fairy didn't find it under my pillow. When I told her that I gave it to Iqbar, she just shrugged and went back to feeding my little sister. From then on, every time I lost a tooth, I would give it to Ik. He would always thank me, of course, and tell me that he loved me. Eventually, though, I ran out of baby teeth, and I was beginning to get a little too old to still be playing with dolls. So Ik just sat there on my bookshelf collecting dust, slowly fading away from my attention. Over time, the nightmares, however, became worse than ever. So bad that they even began to follow me to the waking world, terrorising every dark corner or rustle in the bushes. After one particularly bad night, biking home from a friend's house, where I swore a pack of rabid dogs were chasing me, I got home to find something strange waiting for me in my room. There on my bed, Standing fully upright in the soft glow of the moonlight from my window was Iqbar. At first I just thought my eyes were playing tricks on me again. They had been all evening, so I tried to flick on the lights. Another flick of the light switch, then another, and another, with no change to the darkness. It was then I started to get nervous. I backed away slowly towards the door behind me, my eyes never leaving the shake of Iqbar's silhouette, my hand awkwardly outstretched behind, reaching for the doorknob. I was just about to get my ass out of there when I heard the door slam itself shut, locking me into blackness. In nothing but shadows and silence, I stood frozen in place, not even breathing. For how long, I can't say. But after what felt like a lifetime of cold fear... I heard the shrill, familiar voice. You stopped feeding me, so why should I protect you? Protect me from what? Let me show you. I blinked once and everything changed. I wasn't in my bedroom anymore. I was somewhere else. It wasn't hell, but the comparison wasn't far off. It was some sort of forest, a horrible nightmarish place where partial embryonic abortions hung from the canopy and the ground swarmed with carnivorous insects. A thick fog wafted through the air and with it the stench of rotting meat while chartreuse lightning flashed across the night sky. In the distance I could hear the agonising screams of something not quite human. My head throbbed like it was about to explode, the pain forcing out a river of tears. In my mind, I heard his voice again. This is what your reality would become without me. I felt earth-shaking steps approaching fast. I'm the only one who can stop it. It was behind me now, huge and angry, hot breath across my back. Bring me what I need, and I will. I woke up before I could turn around. The following day I raided my parents' closet for my brother's baby teeth, giving them all to Iqbar. Almost immediately the night terrors ceased and I was more or less able to go on about my life as normal. From time to time I would have to sneak into my little sister's room and snatch what was meant for the tooth fairy, or strangle one of the neighbourhood cats and pry out its sharp little incisors. Anything to ward off the visions, anything from a shark tooth necklace to a cavity-ridden bicuspid. 
I also began to notice that Ick would move about my room whenever I left for any length of time, rearranging my stuff and hanging additional curtains. He was even beginning to look more lifelike somehow. In the right light, his teeth would glisten and he was warm to the touch. As much as he creeped me out, I couldn't work up the courage to just destroy him, knowing perfectly well where that would leave me. So I went on, collecting teeth for Ick throughout all of high school and college. The older I got, the more things I would learn to fear, the more teeth Ick would need to keep me safe. I'm 22 year old now, with a decent job, my own apartment, and a set of dentures. It's been almost a month since Ick's last meal, and the horrors are starting to crowd around me once more. I took a detour through a parking garage after work tonight. I found a man fumbling with his car keys. His teeth were stained yellow from a lifetime of cigarettes and coffee. Even still, I had to use a hammer to get out the molars. When I got back to my apartment, he was waiting for me. On the ceiling, in the corner, two white eyes and mouth of razors. How much do you love me? he asks. More than anything, I reply, taking off my coat. More than anything in the world. Well, everyone, that brings a close to episode 68 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Now, to bring the podcast to a final conclusion, I'm featuring, just as I am in my other podcast called Origins, the music of a Canadian singer called Sora. Sora has no tie-up with my podcast. I just really like her music and like to feature artists of merit. Sora sent me a copy of her new album called Scorpion Moon, and as a courtesy to her, I'm playing a few tracks over my next few podcasts. So for the end of this podcast, I'm featuring the track called Moving On from her album Scorpion Moon. If you like her album, it can be found in iTunes. Bye for now, everyone. I didn't know that dying would be so hard I couldn't know the light would fade away When I would not let you go And now I'm lost to Close your eyes, darling, and let me lie with silence. I tell you, I'll be there when you wake. The truth we know 
Please don't keep 